Uh, now, this evening, what I want to do is I want to speak to you about the greatness of God. The greatness of God. Uh, the task in front of us uh, is both impossible and important. It is impossible because God is everything we are not. God is eternal, independent, and self-existent. He's the only being whose purposes and actions spring from himself. He has no external influence. God is the only one who is absolute in power and dominion. He alone is the most pure, the most simple, and the most spiritual of all essences. God alone is infinitely perfect and eternally self-sufficient. He does not need anything he has created. He doesn't. He is boundless in his boundlessness, one theologian describes it. We cannot fully describe God's nature. God is only fully known to himself. Because God is an infinite mind. And an infinite mind can only be comprehended by itself. God is infinite in wisdom and infinite in goodness. All he does is wonderful, exciting, glorious, just, right, kind. God is greatness itself. God indeed is great. And that means there is nothing then more important and exciting for us to ponder this evening and indeed in our lives than to meditate on the amazing greatness of God. I mean, we should give our, our whole life to gazing and thinking upon who God is. A.W. Toza says, I've just given him an additional A there, didn't I? A.W. <laughs> Toza says, there is no error in doctrine or failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced back to imperfect and unworthy thoughts about God. It's a quote that we think we've quoted a number of times. There is no error in doctrine or failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced back to imperfect and unworthy thoughts about God. In other words, the more we grow in appreciating the greatness of our God, the more we grow in giving him the right worship, the right honor, the right love that he is worthy of. The more we grow in understanding his greatness, the more we grow in appreciating the wondrous work he has done for us in Jesus Christ, for creatures such as us. And the greater God is in our eyes, the greater we grow as human beings, as believers in Christ, in relying on Him in our lives. Are you struggling to rely on God? That is because God is little in your eyes. And the more you grow to just understand how powerful and amazing God is, the more you will rely on Him. It becomes easy. We will find joy and peace in Him. The greater this God is in our eyes, the more we look for opportunities also to tell others about him. Are you struggling to tell people about Jesus? As you think about the last month, can you remember anyone you've told the good news of the gospel to? Well, the reason why you can't remember is because God is little in your eyes. That's a sobering truth. 
Because the more we understand who this God is and what is accomplished in Jesus. Oh, like Jeremiah. We can't contain the good news in our bones. We must let it out. We live to proclaim the honor of his name to people. Because we know God is great and he deserves the, all the honor. He deserves all the honor that we can give him. And the greatest honor I think we can give him is for people to turn from darkness and to worship the one true living God. So the question I want to ask you then this evening is this. How great is God to you? How great is God to you? Are you growing and appreciating the wonder and greatness of God in your life? Are you? Well, to help us answer this question, please look with me there at Psalm 8. I think Psalm 8 really will help us get a sense uh, of some sense of the greatness of God because this psalm declares the greatness of God. Uh, the opening and closing words of, of, of Psalm 8 says this. Look at verse 1. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, it says. You have set your glory above the heavens. And notice how it ends in verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic, how great is your name in all the earth. The name of the Lord, of course, is, as we said when we're looking in Colossians, about the name of Christ, doing everything in the name of Christ. The name of the Lord is his character. It's his reputation. It is who God is. King David is saying, Oh Lord, our Lord, how great is your whole being and character. This amazing psalm, Psalm 8, teaches us some important lessons about the greatness of God. And just, this evening I just want to share three lessons about the greatness of God and how we should respond to that greatness. Three things it teaches about the greatness of God. The first thing is this. God is our great creator. God is our great creator. We see that in verse 1 to verse 5 in particular. You know, at school, uh, in books and on TV, we are often told that this world made itself. That's what we hear. One day there was nothing, and then suddenly, boom, it pops into being. Just like that. And then over billions and billions of years, it becomes this beautiful world we see. That's what we are taught in school. In short, no one created you, the world says. You created yourself. And of course, they don't quite put it like that. They say nature created you. But it's the same thing, isn't it? Nature. You. If we are all nature, you created yourself. They mean you are part of nature. You came from the original nature that popped itself into existence from nothing. Therefore, you are your own creator. And of course, as I've often said, that is the most evil and foolish idea taught to our children in our schools. And of course, propagated throughout the media. It's an heinous evil. And I suspect many who teach this don't really believe it. They know deep down in their hearts that nothing can make itself. It is sheer philosophical and scientific impossibility. So why then is this truth, is this lie, we might say, popular? Well, the reason people teach that is that it appeals to our flesh. It appeals to our flesh. The bent of every person is to be like God. And that was the lie of the serpent to Adam and Eve. You will be like what? Like God. But we are not God. We are not the creator. We are creatures. 
We know from Genesis 1 that the one and true God of the Bible created all things. And King David starts this majestic psalm by telling us that everything in the entire universe has a signature of God on it. All of it proclaims God as our creator. That's what verse 1 is really getting at. Our Lord, our Lord, our majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. David is saying, when we look at the earth and the heavens, we should realize that God made all these things. All of it is a work of his hands. Look at verse 3 there. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Amazing. The entire universe has been set there by God. Astronomers believe there are more stars in the universe that, that, that we can see now, right, than there are grains of sand on all beaches and deserts on earth. I mean, that is staggering when you think about that. More stars in the heavens than all the sand collected together on all the beaches on earth. That, those are worlds. I mean, amazing. And of course, every day we are discovering more of God's creative power, isn't it? Every day new worlds are being discovered as better telescopes uh, are developed. The universe looks bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger every day. And all of it, every single thing in the universe is as, as that logo, we might say, made by God. It has his fingerprints on it. And of course, in recent years, there's been a lot of discussion about, in the scientific community uh, over the possible existence of parallel universes. We do not know if there are any parallel universes, but one thing we can be sure of, if there are, we should be excited about their possibility, because if there are, that's just quadruples the creative power of God. Because God made those parallel universes as well. The world we see, the world we can't see, all of it. God is the creator of all things. And we haven't even started talking about the spiritual realm that God has created. He is the great creator. And King David reminds us here, doesn't he, that human beings are also part of the creation of God. We are the work of his hands in all our complexity. Look at verse 5 to 6 there. Or verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him and this? Mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him. And look at verse 5. Yet you have made him. You created him. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. We are the work of God's hands. You know, if someone gave you a manual and told you to put together a car from the scratch... Okay? Here are the parts. Here's the manual. Right? What, whatever car you've got, you know, but all those, whatever, what car, I don't know, it, it changes car, it's car's car office. So, so whatever car you've got, right? Um, for a poor, it's got a nice vehicle outside. So the BMW, right? All the parts. Not the way you've got it, just the parts. Here is the manual. Do you think you put it together by yourself? I think those of us who just give up <laughs> trying to work out where it is, but we wouldn't even drive it after we've done it if we managed to complete it. It is hard to just even make anything with the manual. 
We struggle to make anything in this world, but God created human beings in all their complexity without help, without a manual. He designed us from the scratch. That speaks to the intelligence of God. He created us and everything to work perfectly. And when God finished the complex work of this world and of human beings, he said it was good. And when I think about that, it just blows my mind away. Amazing. Because think about just how complex the human body we have is, just in its complexity. You should think about yourself more often in this sense, right? I know you think about yourself all the time, but there's a sense in which you should be thinking about yourself. Just how complicated you are. I mean, maybe you should be walking like and thinking to yourself, wow, I'm so complicated, amazing, right? Because you are complicated. You think of your brain, for example, it's very complicated. The brain itself has 10 billion nerve cells interacting in coordination to allow you to do the things you do. 10 billion. Your eyes alone have about 100 million receptor cells. In each retina, which also contains four layers of nerve cells. So the eye itself makes billions of calculations per second, which travels through your optic nerve then to the brain. And then your brain itself has more than a dozen separate vision centers to process the information it is receiving from your eye. <laughs> That's just like, how did he do it? Why is God? And that's just the brain, isn't it? We think of the skin and its two million tiny sweat glands, about 3,000 per square inch, just regulating your temperature. If we're just describing the complexity of the human body, we'll be here the whole day, we wouldn't finish. Because I've not even mentioned your heart, your lungs, your immune system, and a lot more of what God, the way God has created. And the key thing is it all works. God has put all of these together. We should be reminding our children about this. You know, when children are learning these things, I usually go to the website, uh, there's a YouTube channel called Discovery Science, which is really good at this. You, you log in there, you know, but good Christian men there, and women, I'm sure, put it on there, and they just describe the complexity, and they move us in wonder. We should be encouraging our children to, to see such programs, because it's very, very helpful for us to really appreciate uh, that God has indeed designed us. We are created by God, and our God has no rivals. No one compares to him. No one has his power. No one has his mind. No one has his infinite wisdom. And the tragedy we see every day around us is that man gives credit not to God for the complexity of the world. Man gives credit to himself as part of nature. Man claims he created himself. Idolatry of the worst kind. But the scripture reminds us that God indeed is great. So what does it mean for us that God created all things? Uh, this is the first truth David is teaching us. What, does it, what, what should we take away from this? Well, first two things there as we think about the fact that God is our great creator. First of all, it means that all things belong to God. That's the first implication. The world doesn't want to hear that. But because God created everything, God owns all things, not us. None of us owns anything. Did you hear that? You don't own anything. You are just renting your life free from God, right? Every person is alive in this world at God's pleasure. It is all is. 
You know, say, oh, this is mine, this is mine. We often say that, but it's a lie. <laughs> it's a lie. The air you breathe is not yours. The ground you walk on is not yours. The house you live in is not yours. Your spouse is not yours. Yeah, I know. Your spouse really is not yours. Your kids are not yours, beloved. They are not yours. Your job is not yours. This church is not yours. It's not mine. This country is not your country. There's nothing you have that you created. And therefore, there's nothing you have that you own. You don't own it. Everything you have, including your body, belongs to God. And the problem for many of us, for all of us, is that we forget this. This is the big battle, even of our Christian life. Because the DNA of sin is trying to own what God owns. And that's why there's a problem in the world. People fighting here in the Ukraine, um, wherever there's all sorts of trouble going on. You know, we think of the war in Ukraine, isn't it? What's wrong with the war in Ukraine? Everybody's trying to claim they're on the Ukraine, don't they? It's, it's, it's a battle of thieves, spiritual thieves. There's war in Ukraine because both Russia and NATO believe they're on it. Both sides are trying to steal Ukraine from God. They're spiritual thieves. They believe the things of this world belongs to people with power, not to God who created all things and owns all things. Uh, beloved, if we remember this truth, we will become humble. Oh, beloved, we will be, live a humble life. This truth kills our pride, doesn't it? It releases me from the prison of selfish living. It is challenging you to repent of living as if your life is your own. And you know, in Christ, you should know better. Because in Christ, you are owned twice by God, isn't it? You are owned by God as your creator in the first sense. And you are owned by God as your creator in the second sense. You are now a new creation in Christ. And so you can agree with Paul, you are not your own, you are bought with what? A price. Created 100% on, and then God out of his mercy has gone out to buy you a second time. You see, this truth is challenging you to repent of living as if you own your life. It is saying to you, submit your life to God, hand over control to God today, and you're not doing him a favor because as you are living at the moment, if you are living, relying on your own power and relying on everything, you're just a thief. You're stealing from God. And by the way, this answers a question people often ask about giving, isn't it? How much should I give to God? How much should you give to God? That's the wrong question. That's the wrong question. What do you own to give to God? What do you own to give to God? The question should be, how much should I keep? How much would God the owner allow me to keep? The New Testament turns the whole question upside down. God owns you 100%. He owns you 100%. Actually, the giving should be 100%. But God is merciful, so perhaps you should plead with him to allow you to have 1% or 2% of your income or 3% of your income. That's the conversation you should be having with God, isn't it? Not 10%. Start with God saying, you want everything, Lord, how much do you want me to keep? That's a child of God now who's growing to understand what the Bible commands. This truth is also the death of our worries, isn't it? It would be easy to ask God that because this truth gives your worries. 
Right? If you're a follower of Christ, you know this God is our Lord Jesus Christ. So you have nothing to worry about. I've often said, if you're renting a house, do you stay up all night worrying about the house? No. <laughs> you don't. If you have ever rented, you don't stay up all night worrying about the house. Because if something goes wrong, what do you do? Call the landlord, right? Call the landlord, right? Well, God in Christ, as I've said before, is our landlord. He created all things. All things belong to him. That doesn't mean we should be responsible and just do what we like. No, it means whatever we have, whatever we experience, we have nothing to worry about. We know that our Father is the owner, so why worry about We should just pray it over to him. Call the landlord. In fact, for our Rob, we should be saying that when we come to our prayer meeting, right? You've got a problem in your life? Call the landlord. The Lord Jesus Christ, the King of glory. He is responsible for you. Call out to him. So this truth really, uh, as it were, humbles us. It reminds us all things belongs to God. The other thing this truth does, knowing that God is our great creator, uh, is that it should fill us with thankfulness and adoration, isn't it? Uh, of, of our God, because we know we are not an accident. Look, the kids are being taught in school they are an accident. As believers, we must remind them they are not an accident. God created them. They are his creatures, and they are prized by him. And you as a believer, you should know that. But if you're going to tell that to your children and people in your life, you yourself as a believer, you have to sense this first. You have to appreciate that. That no matter what's going on in your life today, you are here because God created you to be you, right? And you matter to God because God made you. As, we must understand that ourselves first, if you're going to teach it to our kids and other people in our lives. You are God's plan A for you. Do you believe that? Because maybe as you sit here this evening, you're a bit dissatisfied with your life. You're like, ah, oh, Lord, I wish I had a different life. I get that at the human level and we talked about that this morning. But fundamentally, beloved, remember, you are God's plan A for you. And I would even say the life you've left, you've lived, is precisely the plan that God had for you. Because God is sovereign. Even in your sin, he overrode it. He's your creator. And because God is your creator, no one understands and knows you more than God does. Oh, it's wonderful, isn't it? I think all of us desire to be known. We, we, love, we want people in our lives who know us. I, I, I hope you do. <laughs> Sometimes it's frightening to be known by people. Yeah? They, you know, I, I put my hand up. There are times when you don't want to be known. But I think at the core level, we want to be known. Wouldn't it be lovely just before I even said something, uh, my brother Rob there understood exactly what I was saying. He was able to place it in context and was able to receive it as I intended. That's being known, isn't it? We want people to know us like that. We all do, right? And marriage, of course, is, is the beauty of marriage is that it allows us to grow to know people and they just know us. It's so very predictable. Yeah, yeah. So he prefers pasta or something. And that's, <laughs> that's good. That's being known, isn't it? That's good, right? That's good. That's being known, right? But, but the point is that we want to be known. And the wonderful thing is that God knows us. He understands us. And because God knows us and he knows us, no one can truly love us as God truly does. God loves us not only as his creatures, he loves us with knowledge, he, he knows us. 
And because God is your creator, therefore you must worship him as your great creator. And I think that starts with seeing creation, by the way. Everything that God has created as a finger pointing to God. Paul David Tribb is very good at this point, always reminding us that we must see life as a finger pointing to God. He would say, if he was here, he would say something like, the rising of the sun, right? Every morning should remind you that our creator is faithful. He's faithful. He causes the sun to rise. The crushing power of a devastating storm should make you reflect on his amazing power. You see what's happening in the U.S. with the tornado? How did you react to that? I hope you react and said, wow, God is powerful. Because God created, the, created the, the tornado that did that. Before you even worry about justice and the rest, just pause and reflect of a God who can flatten a town. A rich town in the West. The storm reminds you of his amazing power. The sweetness of a human kiss, perhaps you got that this morning from your uh, beloved wife or husband, is meant to remind you of God's amazing tender care for you. Because human beings are made in God's image. As they show tender care, they are reflecting God's image. The daily dependence of your children for your care should remind you every day that you need constant care and constant dependence on God. As you look up in the sky, perhaps, and it's a bit dark now, but if you looked up in the sky, you saw sort of shifting stars at night. They should remind you, or you look at the sun, they should remind, the sun should remind you that God indeed is light that never fades. Every experience of love should point you to his love. You see, that's how we live as believers. Let us learn to reflect on creation and let us see in creation pointing us to God. You know? Get a camera or something, start taking photographs like Brother James and see the bit of the nature and let that, you know, <laughs> drive you to meditate on God. Because the creation around us is meant to escort us every day into worship of God our Creator. And actually, this is a tragedy of living an urban life that we don't really reflect enough on God's creation. Um, but of course, even urban life comes under God's creation. So perhaps you might tell me later how that could help us to reflect on the wonder of God as our creator. The point is that all of life which God has created is meant to remind us that he alone deserves worship. And yes, worshiping God as our creator definitely means not abusing creation. It means not misusing creation. It means not misusing our bodies. Self-control is important. It also reminds us that we are to value people. All lives do indeed matter, don't they? And of course the environment by extension. And of course indeed including life in the womb. Worshipping God as a creator means not allowing things that God has given you to replace your creator. Your family. Your friends. Your work. Your hobbies, those, tech, those gadgets. God created those things. Don't allow them to replace the Creator. That's, that's, that's Romans 1. That's Romans 1. What a tragedy that so many who claim to follow Jesus abuse the very gifts that God has given them. And, and as I say, I've said this before, it's a tragedy I see as a pastor. 
I see people being blessed so much. Some have prayed for children, God gives them children, and then they come to worship their children. Some have longed and said, Lord, give me a, a, a spouse. God has blessed them in that. They come to worship the spouse. Some have said, God, give me, give me a job. And God has given them the job, and then the job comes to consume them rather than worshiping God. And then you ask yourself, should that, was, that, was I wrong to be praying for that? Or not? Well, no, I think it was right to pray. Uh, because even in their sin, God will work to change them. Beloved, has God blessed you in some way? Giving you a child who's wonderful, who's precious? Put God first. Put God first. Don't sacrifice your child, as it were. And what I mean by that is that don't put your child against God. Your child will lose. You don't want to be like Abraham. He, didn't, he passed the test in the end, but you know what was going on with Abraham? Only child given by God, and God had to kind of like, let's see where your loyalty lies. We must always make sure, especially the more precious the gift we have from God, the more we put God first and remind God that you come first. And uh, there I say this applies for many of us um, uh, who, particularly with our jobs, we must think carefully around those things. Um, let's take seriously the words of Revelation 22, verse 14 to 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, sorcerers, and sexually immoral and murderers. And listen to this, and idolaters, idolaters. And everyone who practices, who loves and practices falsehood. But don't miss that, idolaters. And we looked at that last time. That's expansive. That's expansive. Where in your life are you practicing idolatry? Where in your life are you refusing to worship God as your great creator? So that's the first thing we learn here. The second thing, uh, truth we learn about God in this passage is that God is our great governor. So first of all, God is our great creator. The second thing is that God is our great governor. And we see that in verse 1 and 2. And also particularly verse 9. Notice King David reminds us that God is not just the author of creation. He is also the one who governs and sustains everything in the universe. Look at the opening words there in verse 1. Oh Lord, our Lord. Did you pick that up? How majestic is your name in all the earth. Notice Lord in capital letters there is Yahweh. The small letter Lord though is best translated as governor. Oh, Yahweh, our governor. That's what basically this one is saying. Same thing in verse 9. Oh, Yahweh, our governor. King David is saying, the sovereign Lord of Israel, Yahweh, is my governor. He's our governor. He controls everything in our lives because he is present everywhere. That's the key. Look at this one. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. It is the fact that God controls everything, right? God has not just created this vast universe and left it to exist on its own. He is also present in each and every part of the universe, sustaining it. Now, if I make a model of something, I do not need to keep sustaining the existence of the thing I've made, right? 
Because once they've fully made something, written something, or created something, they st- it stays like that until something comes along and destroys that thing. The things we make in this life, they have independence on their, they have a self-existent independence. That, that's the nature of creating everything. And I've usually said, like, you know, if you use your iPhone, right, uh, Mr., what's the name of the, the man in charge now? Anyway, the old guy was Jobs. So, <laughs> I don't know the new guy, he's a bit woke. So, so, so I, I try not to remember his name. So, so, but the, the man who made the iPhone, right, Mr. Jobs, Mr. Jobs, um, he's not attached to the phone, he's dead, right? Obviously. So, so, but even if it was alive, it wouldn't be attached to the phone. You didn't want to use a phone where it's attached to it, right? Because human invention, when it creates something, it's, self, it's sort of there, independent from that. If I make a sound, right, or like a singing note, maybe a great pianist sort of make a singing note, right? The sound stops as soon as he stops doing it, right? Because the sound is dependent on him. And that's the difference here. The universe is like that. It's, it's, it, it's, it's capacity to sing along, if you like. Uh, to, to remain as it is requires God to sustain it, the way the pianist sustains the song. Whilst what we make is, by and large, independent. And what it's getting us to see here is that everything we have, just like the song is sustained by the pianist, uh, our lives, all of our lives, is sustained by God. Right? Uh, this means we do not just rely on God for something that happened in the past, creation, but it's something he continues to do in the present and because he has promised into the future. We are totally reliant on God for everything. He created the past, he sustains the present, and he has promised to sustain our future. This is true for your heartbeat right now, it's being sustained by God, as it is true for the heavens. It is true for the grass out there, as it is true for the galaxies. Everything is sustained by God. Now think about that for a moment. Even sinners who reject God, people who reject God every day, they themselves are being sustained by the powerful word of God. I mean, that is remarkable. I mean, how gracious is God that he would sustain sinners who reject him? And you know what is even more amazing? What is even more amazing that is that in Jesus, the great governor of worlds is our governor. That's the big truth here. Look at this one there. Oh Lord, our Lord. He could have said, Oh Yahweh, the Lord. Oh Yahweh, the governor. But it doesn't say that. It says, Oh Yahweh, our governor. This God of Israel is ours, he's saying. The governor of worlds is mine. And, and we can say that as believers, isn't it? Because this God of Israel has revealed himself, uh, who revealed himself as Yahweh, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that as we've been going through Colossians. You think of Colossians 1 verse 17, which says, He is before all things, and in him, that is Jesus, all things hold together. In Christ, this great sustainer of the cosmos now lives inside the heart of every person who truly trusts in him. God, it's amazing, Christ controls us from without as God. And he lives in our heart and controls us from within as well. He is the controller of everything in our lives. And you know that means that if you are a follower of Christ, 
Oh, beloved, you are not at the mercy of anyone. You are not. You are not. You are not at the mercy of the government. You are not even at the mercy of people who love you. You are not at the mercy of anyone. Christ our God is your governor. And it also means that you must live to honor and worship God, not simply as your creator, you must worship him as your governor. Now, what does that look like every day? What does it look like for us to worship God as our governor? Well, worshiping God as our great governor means handing over, doesn't it? it handing over to God your anxieties about the future. Are you, are you feeling anxious this evening? Well, hand over your anxieties to him. Hand over your family. Do it tonight. Come afresh to God. Hand over your family to him. Hand over your finances. Hand over your job. Hand over the church to him. Just say, Lord, you are the governor. You are in charge. You have our future in your hands. And you are sustaining. You know, worrying, we take it for granted. You know, we, we don't take worrying seriously. We should take worrying seriously. Because worry is momentary atheism. We pace ourselves with sleepless nights because deep down we do not believe Christ is sustaining all things. It's that simple. Are you beset by worry tonight? Are you worrying about your future? Are you worrying about your present? The reason you're worrying about that is because you are not trusting this truth that our God is the great governor. Because when we know God is our governor, what do we do? We hand over everything to him, including resources for his glory. We hand over our time, our money, our jobs. Everything is in your hands. And so this evening, I just want you to ask yourself this important question. Where in your life do you need to resign? Okay? Where in your life? You know, I talk about the first point. Call the landlord, yeah? So where in your life do you need to call the landlord, right? Well, this question is a bit different. Where in your life do you need to resign as governor? Where are you trying to chair your life? And where do you need to resign? You know, if you, some of us sit as, you know, on board of trustees and things like that. You know, we're trying to do things, right, as trustees, right? Where, where, you are the trustee of your life, clearly. You have a stake in it. Where do you need to resign in that area? Where do you need to hand over? Where do you need to say, I don't want to be no longer the trustee? I want God to run my life. I want God to run this company, you know, I don't know, Shalom Kanga POC, or whatever your name is, right? I need to resign. God must now chair my life, right? Ask yourself that. Final, final point. Final point. So, th- first of all, God is our great creator, the greatness of God in creation. And this psalm has taught us God is our great governor. Here's the final truth. God is our great lover. God is our great lover. This psalm shows us that. We see that in verse 4 to verse 8 of this psalm. You know, a few years ago, I found myself watching a reality TV series called um, 90 Day Fiancé. Right? You may remember that. This is a show where couples who have uh, applied for a K-1 visa to the U.S. have 90 days to decide to marry or... If they don't, they won't get the visa to the U.S. It's, it's, it's that sort of program. Uh, it's not a program I would recommend. I don't even know if it's there. So it's a bit mindless, but sometimes you find yourself doing these things, isn't it? Watching to see what's happening in the world. Uh, but I was watching it. And I, it so happened, actually, as I was watching it, that I found myself quite interested in the relationships in the program for a little bit. 
I was intrigued to see whether the two couples from different backgrounds can fall in love with one another. Why was, why was I intrigued? Well, because all of us love a good love story. Everyone does. I wonder, what is the best love story you have ever had? What's the best love story you've ever had? Well, I hope your answer is the best story you have ever had is the one you're experiencing right now. Because every follower of Jesus is in the middle of the greatest love story. And this amazing story is summarized for us in verse 4 to verse 8. Look at verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. You know, the inspired poet here, King David, is rejoicing that our great God has lavish glory and, and honor on our first parents, Adam and Eve, and, and, and that has carried on to their descendants. And, and he says God is mindful of all human beings. He, that is to say he deeply cares for you. He deeply cares for us. He has blessed humanity with incredible glory and honor. And the point is that God did not have to do this, right? He did it out of immense love for us. And yet we rebelled against God. We joined God's enemy. Look at this too. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. This perfect world God created has foes. It has enemies. There is an avenger. You, that's because humanity fell from glory. We rebelled against God. But instead of God banishing us forever, God reacted by doing what? Giving us more glory in Christ. That's the gospel. Because this story starts here in Psalm 8. It's actually picked up in Hebrews. Where we read that God has come in Christ to recover our lost glory for us. Hebrews teaches us that Jesus is a second Adam. We inaugurate a new glorious humanity of those who trust him. Flick over to Hebrews 2 verse 5 to 10 for a moment. Uh, it's a passage that whenever you read Psalm 8, you have to read Hebrews 2. Uh, Hebrews 2 verse 5 to 10 uh, says this. And it's very important what it says. Because that is where the love story really, really reaches its crescendo, we might say. Hebrews 2 verse 5 to 10 says this. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? That's the passage in Psalm 8. Or the son of man that you care for him? Psalm 8, you made him for a, little lower, for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. That's lifted from Psalm 8. Putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting, now the writer of Hebrews is explaining. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might test death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, 
should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The good news of that passage we just read, and the Bible in general, is that God is our great lover who has saved us from sin and given us new life in Jesus forever. Jesus, our second Adam. Without Christ, we are wretched sinners. We are like Goma, the prostitute who married the prophet Hosea. Like Goma, we were ragged, torn, sick, dirty, destitute, chained to an auction block in a filthy, sinful market. We were a repulsive shadow of what we were originally created to be. But in Jesus, our Hosea, well, Jesus is God, isn't he? Who has been able to turn spiritual prostitutes into his precious bride. If you are in Christ, God in his great act of priceless love has romanced you with his grace back to himself through the cross of Jesus. That's the gospel. Because Jesus has died for your sin, God is now your loving husband. That's the gospel. He has taken off the filth, dirty, and shameful rags of your sin. And he has now dressed you in the spotless garments of Jesus' righteousness. Now, now, maybe as you sit here this evening, you're struggling with some trial or suffering in your life, and it has left you feeling lonely and broken, and, and even perhaps doubting God. Perhaps you're looking at your life and you're wondering, what does God really make of me right now? What does he make of the mess I'm in? What does he make of the challenges I'm facing as an individual? What does he make of the struggle of my family? Well, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, the Bible's answer is the same. This great God loves you. Not because of your performance, beloved. Oh, we are weak. We are frail. We are tired. We are even easily bored by the gospel. We are weak. But God isn't looking at our performance. He's looking at the blood of Jesus shed on that cross. It has cleansed us from our sin. Past, present, and future. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. That's the gospel. God is our great creator. That's amazing. God is our great governor. That's awesome. God is our great lover. Oh, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And so let this amazing greatness of God set to your heart. Let it move you to worship and delight in our great God. Let it move you to worship Jesus with everything you got, beloved. Oh, let, <clears throat> let it move you to worship God with everything you've got. Because, you know, the thing I ask people all the time is this. Is God real to you or not? If God is real, give him 100%. If he's not, have the courage to not bother. It's that simple. If God is real, give him 100%. If he's not, have the courage not to bother. Because God won't have 50%. He won't even have 60%. Our God is a great God. The great king above all kings. He deserves all. And so we must come to him, isn't it? We must worship Jesus with everything we've got. Worship him with your heart, your body, your money, your relationship, your work. And you know God loves you, he understands all the pressures you're facing. So even the messiness, give it to him. 
Give it to him. Let him handle it for you. And let him move you to read his word more and more. And so I pray to God to help you to love his word. To read his word more and to be more with his people. To pray more and more so that you can grow in loving and serving our great God. Why? Because our God is great and deserves, yes, even tired energy. He deserves everything we can give him. Even when we're tired. He deserves to give him our hope. We must labor for him. We must live for him because he deserves our true worship. Amen.